Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. In honor of uh, the upcoming Father's Day, uh, Tony Abedamarco has brought some special guests in to do some readings and tributes. And so I'm happy to have Tony here tonight reading parts from his first monologue, Four Fathers, and also to celebrate his new play being performed right next door through July 1st, Beautified. Please welcome Tony Abedamarco. Thank you very much for those of you who have uh, come out tonight uh, on this Tony Award night. Um, it, I had this idea um, probably somewhere around the beginning of the year uh, to, this is my father's centennial year, and uh, he passed away in 91, but he would have been 100 this year. So um, I talked to Carrie and here, people here at the bookstore and said, wouldn't it be great to do a reading of the piece that I wrote for my father after he passed away called Four Fathers, and uh, as a, a celebration of his centennial year, and also a Father's Day. And Carrie said, that would be great. Let's do it the week before. And you can invite some guests. So um, I invited uh, two of my friends who, right around the time I had this idea, we were out in the desert um, sort of wandering around. and. Um, we, I presented this idea to them, and uh, they liked the idea because they've done a lot of tribute work to their own fathers. So um, I'm going to introduce them, and um, they can. We've also brought some of. The, both of them are published writers. Um, I'm going to introduce Dennis Hicks and Stephanie Waxman. Dennis Hicks has a couple of his books here, and Stephanie Waxman hers as well. Um, so you'll probably want to take a look at those. They're beautiful books. Um, but in the meantime, let's get started, shall we? So here we go. Dennis, Stephanie, would you like to come up together? or <laughs> All right. Stephanie Waxman, Dennis Hicks. Please give them a warm welcome. That's yours? Okay. When Tony mentioned Fathers and Father's Day, he it hits a very deep uh, core, rich core for, for me. Uh, in 1997, the fall of 97, my father at age 88 died. And he was uh, someone who was a writer himself. He had been taking poetry classes up in Santa Barbara for, for quite a while. And this was a poem that was found on his desk. Uh, he fell, so he everything came to a stop in the, in the house and he died four days later this is the poem that was found on his desk to, to fly is a butterfly death does not come death is already here I don't want to meet a stranger I want to meet freedom from the mind's search for reality 
not the past or the future. Nature provides the transition as a butterfly freed from the cocoon. I want to live with tranquility in life's impermanence, each moment underlaid with the great arms of death's comfort. With family and friends who have gone before, welcome hands to guide me. A sigh of acceptance permeates my mind. I am at peace. To fly as a butterfly out of the maze of uncertainties, out of the restrictive cocoon of life, death is here over my shoulder, my constant companion, my mentor, wise and comforting, giving deep meaning to life. My father was also a poet. And this poem he wrote shortly before he died. Oh, miracle-making creative power, I beseech you, press another hour into the day. Hold back the sun, hold back the moon, let it be 11 when it's really noon. Oh, I pray, use your temporal power and grant us, please, that extra hour. Please say you will give us an expanded day to stretch our time for study and for play. Oh, yes, employ your mighty lever and let us go beyond forever. Oh. <laughs> Two different fathers. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun. Um, <laughs> These, these guys were really uh, a joy, and um, I, had a, I had a particular joy, of course, in, in getting to know uh, my wife's father. Uh, he was a, quite a man. And I just discovered, as we were preparing for this, a poem that I wrote to him. It's called Stanley After Seven Decades. Uh, I just turned 70 a few weeks ago, so uh, I thought, what the hell, you know, <laughs> got to read that. You know? I am enriched by you by your verbal skill that brings the thrill of a pun on the run, coupled in couplets with the philosopher's eye to life going by. You give me calmness and continuity. You make me proud that I can see myself in you. You are humble, self-effacing, with a, an acceptance well spent. Proud, self-sure, with a critical bent. It is your faith in human beings that makes your path sure and your insistence that humans are good by nature. It is your example that we must open our hearts to let our goodness out. That is your spark that lightens all about. So back to another poem that my dad wrote, that man that he was just talking about. Uh, this he wrote toward the end of his life. There in the carousel of my mind, I see them moving up and down, revolving to the sound of music loud and soft. There, my close ones, family, friends, up and down and around they go, passing with smiles, with waves and fears, across my vision now seen, now out of sight, then seen again, and so they go round and round until the music stops and for a moment silent turning, then all the motion ceases. Now nothing seen, nothing heard, 
yet all are there, quiet, turning, soundless song in the carousel of my mind. So he was, uh, that's what he was thinking about before he died, and then when it seemed like he actually was dying, he was on life support, and it was a very difficult time. I don't know if any of you have gone through that, but it's not not fun. My brother was struggling a lot with it. And I wrote this poem to sort of help us all figure out where we were at and what we were doing. Uh, and the only thing you might want to know is that he was a fan of Shakespeare. He loved Shakespeare and his wife, my mother's name was Rena. He called her Reen. This is called Dad. <sighs> there lies a man at the end of his life. There stands his daughter, his son, and his wife. The doctors throw up their hands with a sigh. We've done what we can. It's his time to die. It's true his mind is sharp as a tack, but his lungs aren't working, and all of us lack the skills that we need to make him well. What good is a mind in a broken shell? His wife weeps. Darling, I loved you so. It breaks my heart to let you go. His daughter's tears begin to fall. You'll live in my heart, in the hearts of all who've crossed your path and come to know your gentle love, your poet soul. His son cries, another doctor, another pill. If there's a cure to find, we will, we will. As the people crowd around his bed, what's going on in this man's head? I'd like to stay. I love you so. I want to see the grandkids grow. I want to take good care of Reen. I want to write about all I've seen. But this mortal coil needs shuffling off. I've lost the battle against my cough. This too, too solid flesh must melt. It's not a sense I've ever felt before, but now it seems so right. Amongst yourselves, please don't fight. The time has come to say goodbye, to leave the garden to simply die. I hope my love has made you strong. Unplug the machine, it isn't wrong. Hold each other, cry if you must. In your strength I put my trust. I would just like to mention that Steph took her, her dad's poetry and that experience in the hospital and, and created something called a helping handbook when a loved one is critically ill. And you can download it off of Amazon. You can buy it from Steph. She's got some copies. But that's where the uh, carousel poem is also found. Thanks for the fun, huh? <laughs> Well, I needed something to transition from <laughs> those, yeah, yeah. Th th those feelings, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, when I, let's see, 1982, my, I had two children, have two children still, but they were 11 and, and uh, 7 at that point, uh, beginning to represent different phases. Uh, so I, I, I wrote a, a poem that's had various titles. Some, they seem to be more serious uh, earlier on now. I've just called it Where, and I think really the title is Surrender. <clears throat> you can help me decide. If, this was... Uh, yeah, written in 92 and then fiddled with ever since. Where are my long hours of solitude? Spent nodding next to the crib, fretting over a bronchial wheeze, 
Where is my future? Made present by giggles and cries. Where are my fantasies of perfection? Transformed into ecstatic babbling about my toddler's first steps. Where are my sensitive descriptions of the plight of the world? Brought home by colic, measles, and frightening accidents. Where are my grand designs for world peace? Exhausted by arbitrating over a toy. Where are my dazzling insights? Gone into realizing my child already embodies what I was trying to explain. Where are my novels, my short stories, my poems spent in responding to, Daddy, tell me a story. Where are my urgent needs poured into lives lasting longer than my own? Where is my soul reflected in the smiles and innocent wonder of my children? Where is my heart? On the couch, cradled among books and stuffed animals, pumping strongly. Thank you, Steph and Dan. That was, they were beautiful. Thanks so much. Um, okay, well, now we're going to get into a long form. So um, I'm going to do my best to just keep this at excerpts. Um, this, as a matter of fact, when I did Forefathers originally, um, I was fortunate enough to have the great artist John Nava, who has done the uh, paintings of the procession of saints that were turned into tapestries that line Queen of Angels Cathedral downtown. He did my set for me, and he painted four original paintings based on my family and my father. And uh, this is the only one remaining because the producer selfishly took the other three. She paid for them and she decided they were hers. So um, I kept this one and this one is actually a portrait that John Nava did of my father on the left and Homer on the right. And that will give you a little heads up, I think, about uh, the nature of this particular piece. My father, unlike the two fathers that we just heard about and from, um, was a mechanic. He was not a poet at all. But you'll learn all you need to know about him, I think, and hope from the excerpts that I'll read you tonight. So this is from my one-man show, Four Fathers. I have always pretended my father was something he was not. As a small child, I thought my father was a giant. I grew up to be five foot seven, looming over his five foot four frame. Later, I thought he was generous to a fault until the night we visited the Feast of San Gennaro in New York's Little Italy and I saw him callously brush away the homeless man who begged him for a quarter. Much later still, when I was 30 and living in Los Angeles, he defied my expectations of him again by slipping a $10 bill under the arm of a sleeping drunk. I thought my father was a lover and defender of equal rights for all until, as a college hippie, I heard him rail against the black and Puerto Rican takeover of Brooklyn. Yet, black and Puerto Rican men worked for him, some for 20 to 30 years, and were always treated with generosity, thoughtfulness, and respect. I saw them cry at his funeral. 
I thought he had James Cagney's chutzpah and Clark Gable's brawn and Gene Kelly's graceful charm until he turned his disapproval on me. Then he was Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera, unmasked, terrifying, vindictive, full of ridicule. It is one thing to live in opposition to our fathers, to rebel against everything they are and stand for, to portray them as purveyors of outmoded traditions, to position ourselves far or for what they're positioned against. But what happens when time reveals them to be complex men of contradictions as virtuous or hypocritical as we know ourselves to be? What separates the generations then? And who shall lead? And who shall follow? And why are we compelled to still pretend? In an article from The New Yorker by Adam Gopnik, I read this sentence. We expect our fathers to take as long a time dying as we took growing up. Forefathers was begun immediately after I returned from my dad's funeral. Born out of a need to keep his history alive and mine, I had no idea where I was going with it, nor what form it would take, just as I had no idea how to go on without him. I simply proceeded, week by week, adding memories as they came, building insights into the stony blocks of facts and dates, chiseling through each mask I had concocted for him. It wasn't until the eighth month of mourning that I began to see a metaphorical resonance in this personal tale, and to arrange the data, both factual and emotional, into its present form. It's proved to be an effective way of subverting my fear of the future. I'm prone to that, to looking ahead with too much concern for what's gone. This tale recounts what used to be my silenced father, his presence. By speaking, I feel his hand extend beyond me and move on. To the ancient Greeks, the name Sisyphus meant very wise a sun god whose sacred animal was a bull. Sisyphus lived by cunning, and with the way things were back then on Olympus, he went far. He was a god. He was a dad. He was a sacred king who refused to abdicate at the end of his reign. For this, the judges of the dead said, no more. They ordered him to roll a huge stone up the face of the hill and topple it down the opposite slope. He has never yet succeeded in doing so, for the hill up which he rolls it is the vault of heaven. As soon as he almost reaches the summit, he is pushed back by the weight of his shameless stone and must begin again. And so, part one. The futility of human devotion, Sisyphus. A few weeks before my father left this world, he had a mission. His youngest child, a daughter still living at home, was about to be married. 
For about two years, this date had been set with ample and Baroque arrangements put in motion from its very first mention. In the truly ornate manner of Brooklyn Italian tradition, yards of expensive fabric were ordered and cut, the finest bakeries allocated, a fleet of white stretch limousines with comb accoutrement was contracted, and the church, city hall, and a palatial catering fortress were reserved with fat donations slightly padded to ensure a job exceptionally well done. This was to be, as so many before it have been, and so many yet to come will aspire to be, as lavish and ostentatious a function as one man's pride could render. That one man, my father, hitherto known as Sisyphus, could not be underestimated in the pride he held for his daughter, but more importantly, in the pride he held for his lifetime of achievements. Born on Sackett Street, the last of 13 children to a family of newly arrived Neapolitan immigrants, whose father was a junk man and enough of an amateur philanderer at some point in his youth to have passed a strain of syphilis down to a few of his children, Sisyphus being the last worst case. So, Sisyphus, the sickly child, was given mercury treatments and prescribed a weekly quota of outdoor recreation. By the time he was 12 years old, his athletic prowess and stamina won him a much-competed-for job. Every night, he lit the gas lamps of a square mile of South Brooklyn, running all the way. Each day of the summer was spent at the beach for sun and salt water, when sun and salt water were still considered healing. Coney Island. Out of this Baroque milieu, with its questionable benefits of amusement and health, a powerfully muscled dynamo with federalistic proclivities was evolving into the patriarch Dad. For his 65th birthday, Dad put friends and family, some doddering, some diapered, on the Coney Island carousel, just us, no strangers, and paid the man for an extended ride, standing off. What's he doing? Watching us spin. That was his retirement party. He went back to work the next day. Does every life have a place that resounds with as much significance as Coney Island did for my dad? Coney Island, where every July and August our scantily clad progenitors expose their lust-crazed limbs to the indiscriminate sun and the prurient appraisal of prospective companions. I rode the number two train there a few summers back and saw an American ruin as vivid as any Parthenon or Colosseum. Does anyone remember, care, pay homage to their Coney Island, Sackett Street, Prospect Park, Brooklyn? The spawning ground of our country, where until recently, one out of every four Americans was born. My father, Sisyphus, never did not recognize his antiquated borough as power piston generator to our workforce grit. Phone rings. Hello, ANA brake service. Hi, Dad. What are you doing? Working. What are you doing? Picking oranges off the trees? 
When are you going to give up that rat race and come home to me in reality? As luck would have it, his youngest daughter optioned to get married to a boy whose family had remained intact in the fatherland. Oh, bountiful shores. Oh, Brooklyn. The big day approached, and RSVPs came pouring in. Yes, they said mostly, while the few who declined sent money. Dad kept ledgers of who came to what weddings and what they gave dating back to 1944. So you can bet that people were attentive to the summons of old Sisyphus, whose last daughter would be witnessed worthy in her white lace wedding gown to walk fidelity's plank to the altar. I, too, made my libations, sacrificed a calf, had my suit dry cleaned, and booked my flight from Los Angeles with the courage and conviction of no possible rain checks two months in advance. The sound of thunder. It is now mid-spring. Temperamentally November, though my watch says April 5th. An idea condensing in the brain of an old man has biblical proportions, like a mountain, like the sky getting ready for a cumulonimbus when the weather was serene just an inning or two before. We pause now to genuflect in homage to the last of several projects to engulf my father's mind. With the angel maiden girl upstairs, he turns the channel, vacantly the remote limp in his hand. A thorn of a thought is lodged in his mind, and he's focusing intently on that dot. The angel maiden girl is busy with details of her wedding in the apartment he built for her upstairs, an apartment that has grown from two tiny attic rooms to a full floor of spacious living quarters and a deck of poured concrete mounted high above his porch, trellised with a pattern of white iron leaves and crenellated old New Orleans style. Nothing is too good for that angel maiden girl, that proud, determined, honor roll inductee, schooled in Boston, national oratory prize recipient. No act is too flashy for her passage up the aisle to the altar where each Sunday she reads sermon and the choirs of his feelings sing. Angel maiden girl, what carpet can I roll beneath your feet? My pride suffers to release you. What blood fact can I lay outside the threshold of the strong knot packed that will bind you to a lover for a woman, mother, wife, Life together. Mm -hmm. And the dot takes shape and the idea fills the sky of his cranium. It's going to pour. Sisyphus has climbed abundant hills with his tough rocks. He knows how it's accomplished. Take action. With a heave and a hoe, he resolves to tar the driveway by his own strength. A prodigious ass assignment for a man of 21. And he is 78. 
But nothing is too good for his angel maiden girl. And one Saturday, the hardware is approacheth. I'm looking for tar, 30 gallons, six large cans. Can you help me, miss? Graciously, tar is ordered. For that is how old Sisyphus accomplished all he did. Civility disarmed and apprehended. What was never clarified, I dare say never spoken, was the type of tar required for a driveway. Chalk it up to certainty, to age, to other matters. The fact is that roofing tar arrived with some dispatch, and an old man worked steadfastly applying it. To have witnessed the diligent techniques of this work wizard in all his other ventures was to appreciate meticulousness in action. So brilliantly accomplished was his surety of hand that his home was a veritable Epcot habitat. Circuits reinvented, gardening tools refined, watering systems time-released and measured. A toilet tank system with adjustable flush which employs a lighter setting for eliminating urine. Too bad he didn't patent that then. To the challenges of civic engineering, he contributed a more efficient bus door. A paraplegic's auto controls, hand-operated brake and gas, adaptable to any car's chassis. These were just a few of the countless works improvements he realized in his passion for precision. Why, even the air brakes on the Rockaway roller coaster were installed by this old man, much younger, in spare time, in time, made spare by efficiency. We, his meeker progeny, have other coarse ambitions. Wordsmithing, hairdressing, head shrinking, registering Democrat. Nay, not Sisyphus. Not granite-molded Sisyphus. A Thomas Hart Benton mural of a man. This 20th century turbo-powered epoch gave reign to his brawn par excellence. Thunder again. And the rains came. And the tar never dried. Nay, it moveth as the ancient river Jordan, unto sidewalks, unto streets, where the passing traffic tracked it like a squid-stained blemish, pointing that way, back to his house, the house of Sisyphus. There he is. He's the one. Blame him. Sisyphus in horror. Sisyphus contrite at the living room window, watching God taking over, trading a deluge for my father's hard work gift, mocking him, throwing him a bone, fetch it, stay, sit, nice man, roll over, roll that stone, heavier, unbearable. An idea is a black dot, is a last shot at grace. Thou shalt not save face, thou shalt fall apart with a blood clot, with a blood clot, with a blood clot in the heart. This fist is a sign of a last son's defiance, thrown like a stone at your steeple, God, not a gift. God, a fist, God, my stone, defiance. I shall not forget thy cruelty. Remember, Sisyphus, my dad.
Did my father's fixation with godliness kill him? Just, just two weeks later, he was hooked up to life support. Maybe not. The tar incident was just another bead on his long rosary of contritions. This is the other way that many men pray, the cathartic benediction of hard labor. But the monumental suffering to surpass himself and by his progress glorifying God, does it end with him? <laughs> am I dying to honor my father or am I living to better him? Are you out there in the dark with a stone in your heart, pushing uphill, competing? Did you lose a dad too or never knew you had one? Doesn't it seem like everyone is fatherless these days? Is there a dialogue in the house or is this just one more one-man show? No! At that point, I danced wildly. You have to imagine the dancing. <clears throat> There are so many stories of King Zeus, the father of heaven, and so many aspects of this thunderbolt-wielding gigolo that I am hard-pressed to single out just one. But his relationship to one of his first sons, Hermes, is what now comes to mind. We know Hermes as Mercury. I knew him as a chrome plaque on the side of our car. A disembodied head with wings on his helmet, Lincoln Mercury. I'll come to that. Art was among the provinces of Hermes' special skills. He made beautiful spectral music as an infant from a tortoise shell. He was also quite a trickster, which did his father proud and nearly did him in on one occasion. When Zeus murdered a mortal woman in her sixth month of pregnancy for carrying his illegitimate child, it was Hermes who saved the fetus by implanting it in Zeus's thigh, bringing the baby to term three months later. Child like himself, Hermes guaranteed safe passage and as herald of hell gently hailed the dying. I've always identified with Hermes, with Mercury, Mercurial. I love change. I love playing midwife to special projects. I love to drive and sometimes to be driven. So, part two. The birth of the messenger Hermes, son of Zeus. For a full year after my mother died, I spent many hours in the car with my dad, in other locations as well, which we got to in our Lincoln Continental. One of our more frequent destinations was St. Charles Cemetery in Farmingdale, Long Island. It was fairly new then in 1964, set on a vast tract of well-landscaped terrain, peaceful as a cemetery should be. My mother's grave was in section 13, a quiet, moderately populated corner. Her stone was pink, her favorite color, carved with roses, a cross, and a scroll. Say one Hail Mary was inscribed along the bottom with her name, Rose, and life dates beneath that, 1912 to 1963. Dad was a Sunday service man, very devoted. 
When he was 20 or 21 and keeping company with the girl he loved, my mother, he cut himself moving a large rusty chain at work. They told him that he'd have to have his left pointer finger removed due to a gangrenous infection that was developing. And he promised God that if my mother still loved him after, he would put $2 away a week for the church. And she did. And he did. All his life. His name's on a plaque at St. Bernard's in Brooklyn. Benefactor. Mom, on the other hand, only went to Mass on Easter Sunday and then primarily to show off her latest spring hat. Nevertheless, I'm sure she would have had no qualms about the religious motif Dad chose for her resting place, his resting place too, 28 years later. And her mother, my grandmother's resting place, and who knows who's to come. There are nine more spaces in that plot, though none of us are inclined to lay down beside our parents under those roses, a cross, and a scroll. I did lay down beside my dad one time. For the week after my mom died, dad had me sleep beside him in their bed underneath their wedding cross a large wooden replica of the crucified Christ with a copper Jesus tearfully suspended. Like the two of us, also tearfully suspended on the meeting point of our crisscrossed grief. It was a grief built solidly on the ruins of an existence that even to this day appears golden. The high renaissance of our family. <laughs> The years 1956 to 1963. I'm not equipped to talk about the quality of life for the middle class American back then. I was a child. Despite precociousness, I saw life through the filter of familial protection and a color TV. First one on the block. But in memory, the palace of Minutia was embossed with a sparkling veneer of favorite pastimes. Dad collected records, diamond needles, golden throats, Ella in Berlin, Brubeck's Time Out, Lambert, Hendrix, and Ross, the Hilos. Mom washed, waxed, basted, broiled bounteously. My brother and my sister were comparing gems engaged, and adjusting hems and gestures for their trousseaus. I slept with Grandma, who lived with us since when? The Depression? Her blind husband, the barber, died? Forever. In her satin nightgowns and clouds of lilac Powder, she'd envelop me with ample pats and kisses. Sunday was a feast day we'd celebrate together, from waking up with the smell of meatballs frying for the sauce, to the order of TV shows watched religiously at night. Lassie, by myself, Disney's wonderful world of color with Grandma, Bonanza, Dad and Mom joining in, and finally, Candid camera with the whole clan rounding off the day. And the trips in the car, those local excursions to see relatives and friends, were transcendental. Boom, 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 boom. That Saturday night in the Lincoln town car, beautiful, perfect machine.
Mom and Dad and Mike and Lana and Grandma and, of course, me. Everyone brushed and talked and scented. Everyone leaning front, expectant. I am the most alert I have been. A child on a par with adults. In the back right seat, my feet don't touch the floor of the car. I don't care much. The quality of my adult conversion is strictly, in my view, succeeding. Adept, adult, adept, adult, the car, dad's driving, our closeness, that unified moment in some children's lives when every perception sizzles. Saturday night, silvery light. Don't hug me, Grandma. Here, Dad, turn right. We are a mothership, hermetically tight, flying our flag on strange waters. The current of traffic has shifted against us. With traffic this bad, there must be an accident, our captain, my father, informs us. <laughs> I know that, Dad, I say to myself. I can't wait till I get my license. At eight or nine or ten, was I ten? That infinite interval galled me. I'm busy inventing a jet-propelled car with vertical takeoff options. When we move adjacent to Dad's prescient guests, there, just off my side, the pile-up. Boom, 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 boom. Ambulance, camp, car, perpetrator, victims, everyone busy assisting. When suddenly, lady in passenger seat slides left toward driver's door, hoping to exit the wreck without bruises or maybe just one for the lawyers. Misplacing her foot on the broken car's gas, she catapults it into traffic. I'm standing and watching rear window right side. The broken Impala projectile is suddenly smiling its grillwork of teeth at my throat. Ah! And leaping like trout at the butterfly lure of my quizzical face, its target. Bam to Lincoln and shudder and stop while I'm in a slow-motion whirlpool. Somersault, somersault, somersault down. Not even injured. Released. Some assaults are better than candy when you're in the family fold. The car was still drivable. Dad did the paperwork. Grandma kept hugging me. Thank you. And off into Saturday sailed our battalion. Adept adults, one child. For once I appreciate my status. Baby, flexible bones. Big hugs. That was the coddling crib I grew up in, bundled in love. No brag. Dad loved mom, and mom loved back, palpably so. I witnessed. Mom gave dad a suit for their anniversary in 1960, and in the actual show, I wore the suit. And now, my prayer for the lost love shared by my parents. In early 1930s, he follows her home, walking with her sister, won't go away. In 1934, he marries her. His mother and his brother check the sheets next day. She's a virgin. Yes, they leave content. 
In 29 years, bad and good, three kids born, no one dies. Moved from the city house, bricks and brown, out to the suburb house, pink and gray. Golden age of our family now, health, prosperity, two kids wed, jazz on the stereo, beautiful meals, style and content, holidays grand. Trip to Florida, last great fling, her operation, early spring. Hopeful recovery, fast deterioration. August 27, 1963, she dies at home with her family close, moaning, mommy. He becomes reclusive, inconsolable, remote, walks in late, pays bills, eats out, sells off property, tightens his belt, carries her body in his broken heart, won't forget her, rarely talks, longingly, can't forgive anything. Anyway, lots of time was spent traveling around that year, side by side, me and Dad, my captain. Not too much was said, but in that not too much, everything. Once or twice, big themes got discussed. The facts of life discussion was the weirdest. Remember when your sister used to live at home and sometimes she'd get so crabby she'd stay in her pajamas all day long and do that rocking motion at the table? Well, this was not the never-never land of sex that I'd always dreamed of. We were, however, lost boys. Mom was dead of causes. Don't fall asleep, Dad. Steer me. Dad prayed in the car on his way to work every morning. He would dip his head each time he mouthed a silent Jesus, cross himself each time we passed a church. This freed me up to think about the devil. Marilyn Monroe in Some Like It Hot. Burt Lancaster in From Here to Eternity. The Beatles. The night the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, Dad made a confession. It was a few months since Mom died. We were at her sister's new house. Me, my cousin, and my mother's two sisters went for a ride in the Lincoln Dad drove. Drinks had been drunk, and tongues were loose, and Dad confessed infidelities to the two surviving sisters of his recently buried wife. Tears were shed and kindnesses offered in condolence. But I, I sat remote, the back right seat, my chest contracting. Adept, adult, adept, adult, adept, adult, adulterer. Jumping ahead. We lived on covert Avenue. Really. A picturesque corner lot with a landscaped and manicured lawn. 
our moat. We remained in that house for nearly two years after mom's death. Then it was sold and our nuclear family began its endless splitting. A wildness had set in, upsetting the order of my regulated life, and to match it, I randomly selected different ties. Summer nights were suddenly marauded by stampedes of teenage girls galloping through the neighborhood. We boys would lay out eerily past nine or ten o'clock on damp lawns, waiting, whispering, I wish, I want, I wonder. When underneath the streetlights, a hint of sneakered feet came rumbling across the night, and perfume. We barely kept our writhing in check as they approached, their strangely tinted manes swished with silver. It wasn't long before we rose and followed them to homes with dark dens and absentee fathers. Donna Bacchamento, whose father was in jail, had a mother who enjoyed teasing our hair. <laughs> Her house became the clubhouse, all hours, every day, a sort of Motown makeout pad of hormonal groping. A seething competition of obsession and rejection and release and resist and how far did you go kept unfolding and I found myself unworthy, all too unworthy for the first time in my life, with unwieldy propositions far beyond me. So I ripped myself free of those people who had loved me. I went to military school and earned salutatorian seventh grade. By now, Dad remarried. All was changed. He didn't come to pick me up that graduation day. Too busy. My two bright gold medals dangled worthless. So I set out to conquer a world that he'd ignored, a world of letters, speeches, Academia. I pinned things to my shirt front that he could never own. Eloquence, psychology, man love. And I went as public as a lettered man could go with a virulent belief in independence. Half of my life's hemisphere is armored with awards. The other half still reaches recognition. For 27 years, I didn't give up hope that there might be some medallion that he prized. <laughs> Familiar? You'll never fill your father's shoes, my cousin Jerry gloated. 21 years ago, I shined the shoes my father bought in Ireland, the beautiful black boots he wore in his coffin. Just three months before, he had worn them to the opening of my directorial debut at the Kennedy Center. That night, he sat behind me, ill, gray, old. His doctor had said, don't get out of bed. But there he sat behind me, stifling a cough that was threatening to disrupt our rapt attention. I could hear him wheezing. I could hear the clenching of his lips in strict 
suppression of each spasm of his strangulated breath. He never let it happen. He honored what I'd done. I hold that golden medal in my heart. The practical things have lost their model now that my father is gone. The carved in wood things, etched in stone things, chrome, steel, copper. The physical world has lost its mentor. Laces knot irretrievably, towels fray, and even sheets that once obeyed the body's contours smoothly now nightly tear and wrangle in ragged accompaniment to dreams. The useful things have lost their meaning. A surrogate role replacing each tacit task, design, and mourning groans its luckless tone along surfaces beneath. Shoes even don't know why and return listlessly to closets. The adaptable things have lost their mirth, just doing what is required, nothing extra, no wide margins, not elastic, stiff. The mechanical things have lost momentum or regained some autonomy that predates any association with Anthony Daedalus' dad. My world whirls inevitably, a shocking recognition to have practical things perform without model, meaning, mirth. I wrote that one month after my father's life became a medical record. Its history contained in a file I could lift and thumb through with one hand, listlessly. There was no other way to turn those pages, where words like patient and cardiac and arrest weighed in with equal gravity. It is here that Coney Island closes its parenthetical frame around that life lived 78 years. Sackett Street is where he was born. Sackett Street is where he grew up. Sackett Street, Brooklyn is where he built his shop and worked till his last day of consciousness. But Coney Island is the place we, we return to to perform the functions of farewell. Entering into those eight days of extinguishment, exhausting and extenuating extreme unction days, from the first phone call, he's at Coney Island Hospital, Tony, it's bad, booking the red eye out of LAX and all the way through to the other side, to the yellow cab ride back out of Brooklyn after the funeral with a welcomed anonymous driver who didn't know my circumstance and couldn't have cared less. He had his hot black coffee to go to balance and the wheel and his repertoire of give me Brooklyn any day. Why should he care what I'd been through or whom I prayed for silently? Hey, did you hear the one about the guy who moved to L.A. on a bet? He lost! <laughs> a sucker. Patient. Cardiac. Arrest. And I think I'm going to stop there. <laughs>
Thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. So sweet of you all. It, it, thanks. It means the world to me. And um, I don't know. It just seemed like the right thing to do to commemorate 100 years of my dad. So um, thanks so much. And we do have, <laughs> what do we have? We have so many things here. It's a bookstore. Um, Camera Obscura by Dennis Hicks uh, is a book that was very well reviewed in the LA Times. It's a wonderful murder mystery taking place right here in Southern California, LA, Santa Monica. Um, Divided Loyalties, a wonderful book by Stephanie Waxman, um, my two dear friends here. Stephanie's book, Divided Loyalties, about uh, the um, the the blacklist, yeah, and the the horrors wrought on a family by the blacklist. Um, very personal, very beautiful book. And a, a, a number of other things. So those are here and for sale if anybody would like any. Also, I have some CDs, audio CDs, that I recorded last summer uh, that are um, basically, I call them messes. They are essays in memoir form. And uh, there's a few of them that, that I brought with me tonight, and I've got those for sale too. But thank you again, and please honor your fathers. Oh, and Beautified, my show Beautified is Pick of the Week from the LA Weekly, running next door on the weekends. And uh, thanks, I'm very proud of it, and I have little postcards for that, so if anybody would like to come and see it, please do. It's uh, beautifully rendered, and I wrote it, Jenny Sullivan directed it, and we've got three... Uh, it's about, actually, <laughs> I'm something of a eulogist. My brother passed away four years ago, and he was a hairdresser. And um, when he passed away, I started writing a story about his time in his beauty parlor and his relationships with the customers who were his friends for 40 years, who were loyal to him right to the end. So that's what the play is about. And uh, it got a really superb review in the LA Weekly last week, so I'm very proud of it, and I think it's a beautiful show. So I've got cards for that. Thank you all so much. Happy Father's Day. And thank you, Stephen. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.